Let's pray again together, please. Father, we don't often think of your word as more necessary than our food or our drink, and yet that is exactly how Jesus described it. And so we do pray that in this moment and throughout our days and weeks that we will hunger and thirst for your word, uh, knowing that we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So thank you for the chance to feed on this, your word now, and I pray that we will find it, find it to be tasteful and sustaining for whatever it is you might have before us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. You may take your Bibles, I hope you will, and turn in them to the Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles, and we're going to start tonight in chapter 11, and for those of you that are using a Bible from here, uh, you'll find that on page 294, I believe, page 294, 1 Chronicles 11, last week... We sped, I don't know if we sped, I felt like we were speeding, but uh, we went uh, through about the first 10 chapters of First Chronicles and uh, tried to obviously not cover everything we could within those chapters, but tried to at least set the stage for the story that's being told there. And tonight, Lord willing, we'll cover another 10 chapters, uh, hopefully quicker even. So we'll see how this goes. I sort of view what we do during this time, uh, when we can, as we're trying, I'm trying, I'm hoping that we are being, in some ways, transported from the world in which we live to another world. It's almost like I want as much as possible to help all of us go back in time, to go to a place and even a land and to get with people that would be foreign to us and uh, whose, whose world we only read about. And I do that because otherwise all that you and I would know is the world in which we live, which is really pretty narrow and which is really pretty hopeless. If you seek, and all of us do to some extent, but when we seek our hope, our happiness, our joy, our satisfaction in things in this world, we're always left unsatisfied. And so I want us to go back to another place, to another time, to another world, you might say, in part so that... We can get this world, you could say, out of us. I want to get us out of this world so that this world will get out of us. And I think that's kind of what the writer of First Chronicles is trying to do. Because the writer of First Chronicles is writing to a group of people who would have gone away into exile. They would have been actually physically transported from their land and taken to another land, and then God graciously allowed them to come back to their homeland. So in some ways, 
their own experience can kind of be a teacher. So like if, if I could actually, you know, if, if someone here knew how to invent a time machine and I could, we could actually go back 2,500 years or so, that would be a better teacher than I can be here for the next half hour or so, right? Because you would learn more from actually being there than you would from just us talking about it. Well, the readers of First Chronicles actually had the benefit of both. They lived in that world. They lived through an exile. They're now brought back into their land. But the writer is trying to show them not just that they have been brought back into their land, but he's trying to get... So there's a, the phrase that, that I've seen some say is it's like the people have been brought back from Babylon... Now the writer is trying to get Babylon out of the people because they kind of would have grown accustomed to the way life was even in exile that some of them may have thought, hey, we're kind of used to this now. Why would we go back home? And it's like the writer is saying, here's why you're going back home because here's what home really represents. So in that case, we actually have that in common with the readers of this book. So to help us, go through these chapters tonight. I want to give you, and you've got an outline there in your bulletin I, to guide you, I hope, and so you can kind of fill in some of these blanks as we go. But I'm going to give you several points at the beginning of just the structure, so like the layout of all that happens. So I'm going to talk, again, hopefully quickly, just about what happens, and then explain why it's kind of told that way or structured that way, and then just three observations, three highlights. Just hit the, hit the high points and then talk about the details in our groups. So, in this structure, in these chapters, there are, uh, I think seven is the number, there's nothing magical about that number, I just think that's how many there are, uh, if I counted right. So, and they're, and they're I listed them in, in letters, so like A, B, C, but then you'll notice there's another set of ABC, there's a reason for that. I'll explain that when we go through it. But here we go. Here's the first part of the structure. Letter A. David ascends to the throne. David ascends to the throne with the help of his mighty men. His mighty men. And that is the summary of chapters 11 and 12. So look with me, and and I'm going to go quickly, so you'll need to have your eyes on it. Look at chapter 11, verse 1, where we are told, Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron. Remember, they do this, if you, if you look back at the very last verse of chapter 10, because Saul, the previous king, had died, and the Lord had handed the kingdom of Saul over to David. So now all Israel gathers together to David, and they say to David, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. It's, it's almost like when Adam saw Eve, and he said to Eve, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Basically, he's saying, like, we're united together, right? We're one together. You're with me, and I'm with you. And it's, it's like these guys are saying to David, hey, we're with you. We are yours. You are ours. We are for you. We are with you. Verse 2, they say to him, even in times past when Saul was king, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord God, Lord your God, said to you, You shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over 
my people Israel. So he's actually given two titles. He's going to be a shepherd. That actually makes sense because David had been a keeper of sheep. So it's like they're saying to him, hey, David, just like you shepherded the flocks of your father, now you are going to shepherd the people of the whole nation. And not only are you going to be a shepherd, you're going to be a prince or a ruler, essentially a king. So David covenanted with them. Verse 3, the, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord. So David covenanting with them is his way of respond, responding to them, just like they were saying, hey, we're with you and for you. David is covenanting with them and binding himself to them just as they had bound themselves to him. So then they leave the city of Hebron. They go to Jerusalem and look at what they're told in, in uh, Jerusalem. Verse 5, the inhabitants of Jebus, it's the nickname of Jerusalem, said to David, you will not come in here, which in hindsight was not accurate. They were bold but not able to back it up. You will not come in here. And then the very next sentence, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. So, so understand the humor here. The inhabitants of the city say to David, we're not going to let you in here. You will not come in here. And the next thing you know, the city bears his name. It's the city of David. So not only do they enter the city, they overtake it. They name it after David. You see what happens uh, at the end of verse 9 or in verse 9. David became greater and greater. Why? Because what? What does the verse say? Why did David become greater and greater? Abigail? Because the Lord of hosts was with him. So David is the king that the Lord had appointed to rule his people. And then you have this extended section about David's mighty men. And the tales of these men are really quite remarkable. The most famous story is about three men who went to Bethlehem because they overheard David say, Oh, how I wish for a drink from the well that is at the gate of Bethlehem. Well, the problem was that Bethlehem was guarded by Philistine army. And so these three of these mighty men broke through the Philistine guard, drew up water from the well, and brought it to David. And David knows the taste of this water so well, he, he knows where it's from, and it says that he refused to drink it. Verse 18, David would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. These things did the three mighty men. So there's, there, there are these three mighty men, but then they are part of a larger cohort of these other mighty men. If you go over to, verse, uh, to chapter 12, you read about how repeatedly these men helped David as he became their king. So, for example, chapter 12, verse 18, you actually read about how the Spirit of God came on a man named 
Amasai, he was chief of the 30, and he said, We are yours, David. We are with you, O son of Jesse. Peace to you and peace to your helpers because your God helps you. Or verse 21, they helped David against the band of raiders. Uh, Verse 22, from day to day, men came to David to help him until there was a great army like an army of God. And all this resulted in David ascending to the throne, ruling over these people, gathering men and women to himself. And the last few words of verse 40 of chapter 12 summarizes it well, where, where we are told that there was joy in Israel. David ascends to the throne with the help of his mighty men, and there was joy in Israel. That's letter A. Letter B. The next part of this structure. The Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, is brought from the city of Kiriath-Jerim to the house of Obed-Edom, who is a Gittite, which actually means he's a man of Gath. Now, the ark had been in this other city since the days of Samuel, but David wanted to lead the people in a way that seemed good to them to the Lord. So if you look at chapter 13, verse 2, David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us, then let us bring again the ark of our God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Now, why would David want to have the ark of God's covenant with him and with his people in Jerusalem? What was significant about the ark? What did it symbolize? What did it represent? Why would it matter that the ark was there? Go ahead. That's exactly right. This was, this was the symbol that showed that God himself was dwelling among his people. That God's presence was there within them. And so, verse 5, uh, well, verse 4, all the assembly agreed to do so. The thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel uh, and, and so they're, they're going to bring the ark of God, uh, except that there was a man. So verse 9, they came to the threshing floor of Kedon, and Uzzah, a man helping to carry the cart, put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before the Lord before God because he did not revere the holiness of God's presence that the ark represented. And David had a couple of different emotions here. So in verse 11, we're told that David was, what does it say? Angry. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. Verse 12, David had another emotion. David was, what is it? Afraid. David was afraid of God that day. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So they leave the house into, into the hands of another man, Obed-Edom. And we're actually told at the end of verse 14 that the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Because, again, the, symbol, the symbolization of the 
presence of the Lord. So that's the second step in this structure. Here's the third one. Let us see. David's house and family. We read about David's house and family just briefly in the opening verses of chapter 14. Look at, for example, at verse, um, verse 1. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David. He sent cedar trees, also masons and carpenters, to build a house for him. David's the king. He deserves a kingly house. And so even other kings are sending materials there for him to build that house. And verse 2 says that David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. And then in verses 3 through 7, you read about David's wives. He had multiple wives. He fathered more sons and daughters. And so you read the names of his children that he fathered there. So David's house and family. Now, the structure takes us kind of backwards while still advancing us forward. What I mean is it, it's almost going to sound like the cycle repeats itself. Okay, with new material, but, but following the same pattern that it did before. So that's why we're going to go back to letter A and read about now how David defeats the Philistines. David defeats the Philistines. How did David come to power initially? Well, he had several mighty men who were fighting for him and with him, and they defeated David's enemies so that David could ascend to the throne. Well, now David is established on the throne, but that doesn't mean he no longer has enemies. So, verse 10, well, verse 9, chapter 14. Now the Philistines had come and made a raid in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? This is actually a lot like the first chapter of, of uh, Judges, where men of Judah had asked similarly about the Lord as they're going into the, to conquer the land. Shall we go up? And just as he had then, the Lord here says, Yes, you shall go up. Go up and I will give them into your hand. And so that's what David does. And if you look at verse 16 at the end of the chapter, David did as God commanded him. And they struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Gezer. And the fame of David went out into all lands. And the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. Meaning that other, even other nations feared David. And thereby, I suspect, some of them even probably feared David's God. David defeated the Philistines. Back to letter B again. Previous letter B had something to do with the ark, so does this one. The ark now is brought to Jerusalem, and the people sing praises to God. David realizes the reason that bringing the ark the first time was unsuccessful was because he hadn't followed God's instructions for how to bring it. So in chapter 15, verse 2, David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. So David specifically assigns the Levites. You might remember from last week, these are the ones from whom the priests came. They had been trained on how to handle the holy objects, how to minister among the sacred things, how to carry out even the worship that was there among the people. So if you look down 
uh, at verse 12. This is what David says to these men, to these Levites. He says, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. And then they are successful in bringing it up. So you look down at verse 25. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring, the ark, bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And then verse 28, the summary of it. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. And then, in chapter 16, you read about how because the presence of God was now there in the city, among all the people, David then, look at verse 4, chapter 16, verse 4, David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke and to thank and to praise the Lord the God of Israel. Verse 7 says that on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord. And so throughout the rest of chapter 16, you have some of those verses that we even read at the beginning of our time together that Mr. Grieve read for us. This song of thanks, giving thanks to the Lord, singing about His wondrous works, glorying in His name, and making known his deeds, not just in Israel, but among all the peoples, among all the nations. Just as if you look down at verse 35, David taught them also to say, Save us, O God of our salvation, and gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So the way that God would rescue his people, even as he would rescue them from other nations, was to be assigned to those nations so that people in those nations even would sing their praise to God. So they have the presence of God in that place. David then gathers them to worship God in that place with their song. And then in chapter 17, you have Letter C in your notes, the covenant with David. The covenant with David. In verse 1, we read about how David wanted to build a house for the Lord, just as there had been a house built for him. But instead, the Lord said, You are not the one to build a house for me. One of your sons will do it. Instead, the Lord repeated the promise about David being a shepherd who was also a king. So, chapter 17, verse 7. The prophet Nathan was told by the Lord, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. 
You are one who was a shepherd. You are a shepherd. But now you are to be prince. You are to be ruler over my people. And he announced a promise to David, starting down in verse 11, that one of David's sons would be king, not just in his lifetime, but forever. Look at verse 11. He tells David, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Which means that this covenant with David is something that promises an eternal king for all of God's people. And David responded to these promises with a prayer where David humbly gives thanks to the Lord because the Lord would make his name great through David and through his sons. And then the last point here for our structure takes us back to letter A, where David and his men defeat their enemies. So chapters 18, 19, and 20, you read David and his men being confronted by various opponents, and you can read some of these summary statements. For example, look at verse at the end of verse 6. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Same thing down at the end of verse 13. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And because the Lord gave victory to David, what characterized David's kingship? Well, you read about it in the very next verse, verse 14. So David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and equity to all his people. I don't know if there's a higher compliment that can be given to a king. He ruled the whole nation with justice and equity for all his people. And this was true not only of David, but also of some of David's commanders. If you, so, for example, chapter 19, verse 13, Joab is telling his fellow soldiers, Be strong. Let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So David is even showing other people what it's like to seek the Lord as they fight these battles. Now, what was David's most famous victory to most of us? Probably. We didn't read about it here, but his most famous victory probably was against, I would say, Goliath. I think Parker's exactly right. Well, interestingly, our section ends with kind of a sequel to that story. So, uh, look down at chapter 20 and verse 4. After this, there arose war with the Philistines at Gezer. The Philistines are back for more. Uh, verse 5, there was again a war with the Philistines. Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lamy, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the man from Gath. So, you have one of David's men striking down the brother of Goliath, and we're told that this brother, uh, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. 
And then you read about another, another man. There, there was again war at Geth. This is verse 6. There was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. He was also descended from the giants. That, seem, that seems like a bit much. I'm happy with 20. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemai, David's brother, struck him down. These were, the, these were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So, again, to summarize the statement there in, verse, in chapter 18, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So, so the reason that your notes are, are structured that way is to show, you, you can kind of see this pattern, David ascends the throne by defeating his enemies, and then he makes sure the presence of God is with them through the ark, and then through David's house, there's blessing for all the people. So David fights more enemies. The ark, there again, is there to represent the people of God. And then God makes a covenant with David and his family, and David then defeats more enemies. Now, three highlights just to conclude here. So that, that's... Again, just a 30,000-foot view of all the details in those chapters. Uh, what is the takeaway? What does any of that, how could any of that possibly matter for us? Well, let's hit the highlights. I, norm I normally don't like hitting the highlights. In fact, I, I have to tell basketball players that I coach, don't just watch the highlights because then you'll try to do something you're not capable of doing. Watch the simple, normal, fundamental Things Well, I'm going to break my rule now, and we're going to look at the highlights. So, what are the highlights? Here we go. And I'm going, to, I'm going to line them up with the letters from the structure. So, what would be the highlights from letter A? Here we go. Letter A. The highlight is an anointed king who defeats his enemies and gathers followers. An anointed king who defeats his enemies and gathers followers. David is promoted to the throne. He has men who are behind him, with him, fighting for him, sacrificing for him, laying down their lives for him, putting themselves at risk to see his name made great, not just in Israel, but among all the nations, because David has shown himself to be a worthy king, a worthy king and a powerful king king, one who judges those who opposes him, and one who welcomes those who receive him. So that's highlight number one, an anointed king who defeats his enemies and gathers followers. Highlight number two, letter B, the presence of God which leads to the thankful worship of all nations. The presence of God which leads to the thankful worship worship of all nations. So imagine being in the presence of this king who emphasizes that as we are in the presence of God himself, we have a responsibility to sing our thankfulness to him, to give thankfulness, to give thanks to him for all that he's done in the past. And to show that his power is not limited just to that building or that sphere or that city or that nation, but to all nations. So that 
those from other nations can also submit to him in thankful worship. And then highlight number three, letter C, a promise of a son whose kingdom and throne will be established forever. A promise of a son whose kingdom and throne will be established forever. That's what you see in David's own family and in the Lord's covenant with David. Now, I hope you see what all this is hinting at and previewing. But if you don't, I want to make it clear at this point. You and I, even now, are anticipating that all of these highlights are not just things of the past, but things of the future. That one day, God will again anoint a king who already, in one sense, has fully defeated or disarmed his enemies by laying down his life on the cross and then conquering sin and death by rising from the grave, but will one day come in power and great glory to finally overthrow all who oppose him and gather his followers to himself. And when he does, the presence of God will be in the midst of all of those followers who will then respond in thankful worship to him and have as his followers representatives from all the nations of the earth and the promise of the Son will be fulfilled and He will come and sit on His throne and His, and his kingdom will be established forever on the earth so that people will forever live in His presence. Which is why, as I said last week, when we gather together like this, we are doing something that is no small deal. This is a preview of what we were created to do and what we will indeed do forever. Let's pray. So, Father, again, we thank you for the riches of your word and for the nourishment that it provides to our souls. And there's so much more here we could have talked about and maybe even should have talked about and certainly that we should seek to apply. And so I pray as we break into groups here shortly that you'll show us uh, not just um, that all these are neat things that have happened in the past, but indeed that, uh, that these things make a difference for the way we operate in life now, for the way we uh, prioritize our time and, and what we uh, give our attention to. So, Lord, let us be submissive to you. Let us urge one another to get beyond our own little world and into your world, into the reality of what it is you have done in the past and what you are preparing us for in the future. Thank you for your great love for us. Help us now as we uh, attempt to respond in love and in worship and in song to you. In Jesus' name, amen.